If you've got your Bibles, uh, I encourage you to stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. So in Matthew chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 12. So hear the Word of the Lord. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, hey, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So we've For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Now when King Herod heard this, uh, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them uh, where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written about him in the prophets. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I may too go and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. And it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we come to you as we do every Sunday, asking for your Spirit's help to illuminate, to give insight, to give understanding, help our eyes to see beyond just little words on a, on a white sheet of paper, and that we will see these words of life-giving. So Lord, heal us in whatever way we need that, God. And as we sang a few minutes ago, Lord, we just ask that Jesus would shine into our night. That he would drive our dark away to your glory fills our eyes. Jesus Christ, we beg and cry out, shine into our night. Bind us to your cross where we find life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're just joining us, we're, we're starting a, a two-and-a-quarter journey through the, the book of Matthew, and, and, and hopefully you can stay with us for those two-and-a-quarter journey. I was talking to my 17-year-old on the way home last Sunday. He said, hey, Dad, do you know that when we get done going through the book of Matthew, I'll be in college? And I was like, ah, I didn't want to know that. All right, it's... That's kind of rough, but we are, and I, and I am really excited about working through this book with you guys, and, and I don't know, maybe it's been weird for you, it's been a little weird for me to kind of deal with some stories that we're familiar, or we're familiar to hear during the month of December, uh, during Christmas time, you know, the story we looked at last week, and even this one about the wise men, we're always kind of familiar with these stories because they're usually taught during Christmas, and hopefully, by us teaching them in a different month, you know, I, I, my prayer is they, they've kind of surprised us a little bit, that they've... Um, you know, giving us some, some insights that we've never seen before uh, because the Word of God can do that. There's all kinds of gems that are in there. 
And so just like we said uh, last week, just as a reminder here, so in these uh, first couple chapters, Moses, uh, Moses, <laughs> Matthew, <laughs> that was funny, uh, Matthew, um, yeah, thank you, uh, Matthew has put together five narratives that are kind of giving us a sort of a picture of, of Jesus' birth, kind of his birth story, so to speak. And, and all five of these narratives are uh, connected by this little word fulfillment, fulfill. We see this over and over in these five narratives. And now come back next week and kind of nuance that a little bit more because it's fulfillment means more than just, hey, there was a prediction in the past and now it's fulfilled in the present. It means that, but there's more of what Matthew's trying to do with that. So I come back next week and encourage you to, because uh, that's what we'll be looking at next week. So these five narratives, just, just real quick here. We looked at the first one last week when, when the angel came to Joseph and convinced him to marry Mary, right? So marry Mary. Um, and then uh, today we looked at the second narrative. We're going to look at this about the wise men who came and visited uh, the toddler Jesus. The third narrative kind of happens right after this when, when an angel comes to Joseph and says, hey, you need to get out of Egypt because Herod's going nuts. Uh, we go on in chapter 2 and verses 16 through 18. We get the fourth narrative. Forth, the fourth narrative and there's the genocide that's going on and then we land the plane with the fifth narrative where the angel comes back to Joseph and says hey get out of Egypt go back to Israel because King Herod's died and it's sort of calmed down a little bit so next week what we're going to do is we're going to take those three narratives in the middle of chapter two all the way to the end and make them all one kind of mess- sermon and here's the question that we're going to try to answer as best we can all right where is God in a genocide because that's what happened here. Herod ordered the killing of every, every boy two years and under in Bethlehem. It's a genocide. Where is God? Where is God when a 14-year-old girl has to take her baby and in the middle of the night escape to Egypt? Where is God? Where is he in difficulty and tragedy and hardship and, and questioning and suffering and pain? That, that's the question where we're going to try, right, to give some understanding to. And, and the reason why I say try is because, man, it, uh, it's not easy answers. And we are a church that doesn't want to give trite, easy answers to issues like a genocide. But we want to allow the Word of God to kind of inform us on how we can see and look at things. And so, um, yeah, encourage you to come back next week as we kind of unpack that. So today... Uh, here's all I want to do, all right? Here's my, my kind of sort of outline. So I want to go back and real quickly, like for five minutes, just run back to the story because I think it's so familiar with a lot of us in here that we probably have some ideas about the story that are a little off, all right? And so I just want to maybe kind of shed a new light to it and maybe correct a little wrong thinking, amen? So just have a little fun. Make sure we're all on the same page. And then I want to come back and just answer the two questions that we answered last week. And I promise this is the last Sunday I'll do this outline. But I do think this is what Matthew's trying to do in these narratives. He's trying to answer who is Jesus. So he's trying to give us an understanding of who is this baby that he fleshes out more in the gospel. But here at the beginning, he's trying to kind of sort of whet our appetite so we understand who this person is. So who is Jesus? And then that's going to cause us to ask the question, then who am I? So this is who Jesus is because as I know him, I'm getting to know myself. As I'm getting to know myself, I'm getting to know him. It's dual knowledge here. So as we learn who Jesus is, then what does that teach me about me? So those are two questions. Who is Jesus? Who am I? And before we get there, let's just kind of real quickly review the story. So what we have here is a, a group of wise men who are also called Magi, and they are traveling east, all right, traveling east to Jerusalem. And these, 
Uh, these wise men are probably coming from Babylon or Persia, not really sure, but somewhere in that vicinity. Uh, they are astrologers. They are they're magicians, so to speak, hence the name Magi. They are experts in interpreting dreams and stars and, and other strange happenings, all right? This is kind of what they do. They would be uh, uh, modern-day psychics. They would. They would be modern-day uh, tarot card readers, I think of saying that. I know there's two different ways of saying Tarot, okay, you guys look really glossed over right now. Uh, they would be like palm readers in our day. This is who I'm talking about. But they would have, uh, a, and I don't mean this in a mean way, all right, but they would have a little more respectability and credibility in this time, all right? But that's who this group of people are. And the reason why they're going to Jerusalem is they were making their normal stargazing observation and they saw this star, this massive star that meant a lot. They knew there's something important about the star that a king has been born. And so they load up and make this five to 800 mile journey, which takes them two months. So this, this is not like getting in the car. Hey, let's go see grandma, right? And you go 10 hours down the road. Man, this is a massive journey and this isn't just three guys on a camel trotting into Jerusalem hey we're here to see the king you know that's thank you for laughing a little bit with that one that's not what's going on here this is an this is an entourage upwards to over a hundred that's coming into Jerusalem so much so and we saw this when we read the scripture that it that the whole town of Jerusalem noticed something crazy is going on this is a massive kind of group of people that are rolling in here and so they arrive into Jerusalem and they go up to King Herod and I'm not really sure how wise this is but they go up to the king of the Jews that's been appointed king of the Jews Herod and ask him where is the real king of the Jews <laughs> right it's like I don't know, I'm not real smart, but I don't think that goes real well. Amen, right? It's, it'd be like us rolling into the White House and going up to President Trump and saying, hey, where's the real president, right? I, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't go real well, right? Especially with him. And so <laughs> some of you guys would probably like to do that, but um, just, that's just a funny joke. Please do not see me mean emails, all right? So I don't mean anything by that. But here's what we know about Herod. He's in the latter stages of his life. I think about two or three years later, he dies. And during this latter stage, I mean, he's an evil, wicked, power-hungry, ruthless king. I mean, he is. He's, he's, a, he's a psycho. Man, he really got some issues, man. Um, but in his later, later on in his life, I mean, he's just extremely paranoid. So paranoid that uh, he wrote six different wills during this time. So anybody writing six different wills during this time has got some real issues of being paranoid about who's trying to take over his throne he killed three of his sons during this time three of his own boys and killed one of his wives because he was convinced there was a conspiracy that they were kind of putting together and so you can imagine right uh, how this came across or even how um, Herod received this I mean we see it in the past of scripture when they came and asked where's the king of the Jews where they say he was what he was troubled and that word means specifically he was in turmoil he was absolutely terrified and so he gathers the religious leaders, these uh, scribes, these people that knew the Old Testament really well, and says, hey, where is the Christ supposed to be born? Where is this Messiah? Where is this future king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they knew exactly. Say, hey, the prophets tell us he's going to be in Bethlehem. And so he gathers the wise men and says, hey, this is where it's going to be. It's going to be in Bethlehem. Uh, when you find out where this child is, come back and let me know so I can go and worship him and we know because of the full of the story that that's not the case that wasn't his plan at all 
uh, he was going to do away with them. So the wise men and their entourage make this six-mile journey south. That's all it is, six miles from Jerusalem south to Bethlehem. Now notice, all right, and this is what I mean by there's all kinds of gems in this little story, and I can't go after all of them, all right? So I'm just making notice of this. Go home and think about it. Notice, number one, they make the six-mile journey south. Herod stays back in anxiety, terrified, freaking out. But who else stays back? Yeah, the religious leaders. People who knew the Old Testament, the Bible, really, really well. And here's a group of wise men who said, possibly, perhaps, the child, the Messiah that you've been longing for, praying for, has been born. And he's six miles south of Jerusalem. That's a good run for some of us in here. And what do they do? They stay. They stay. Like I said, it's a sermon in and of itself, but it is a warning for us, especially those that are like all of us in this room who live, quote-unquote, in a Bible Belt, where we're in an overchurched area where stories like this become really familiar and we become complacent. There's no longer surprises we don't come expecting God to do something. So they make the trek down there, and we've kind of finished this story up in verses 10 through 11 when he says this. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. And entering the house, so he wasn't any longer in the, the cave, the stable, and he's probably about one years old at this time, all right? So it's, it's not a baby anymore. So entering the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we see in verse 12 that in a dream, most likely an angel, even though Matthew doesn't specifically say that, in a dream they're warned not to go back to Herod, but to go back home in a different route. And then they do that, and then that's it. We never hear anything about these men ever again. They're just gone. We don't know if they got back. We're kind of assuming they did, but we don't know. So why in the world would Matthew choose this narrative? Why? Luke doesn't. Luke leaves it out. So why does Matthew choose? Well, one is, obvious, is that this really happened. This is an historical account, guys. This really did happen. Another reason is because he's trying to teach us something about who Jesus is. He's got a kind of a plan here. He's got a way of writing here. He's wanting to kind of leave these little... Um, uh, little, little, little previews of what's to come to help us understand who this child is. So specifically here, what Matthew's wanting us to see is that Jesus is the king. That Jesus is the one who is in charge. That this child, this little toddler that the wise men went and saw, he is the, capital T-H-E, king. Not only is he God in the flesh, which we learned last week, but he's also the king. And this royal note runs through this entire narrative. And interesting enough, this is the longest narrative in the book of Matthew. The longest detailed narrative in the book of Matthew. And I think part of that is because Matthew's really wanting to get across this point that Jesus is the king. Obviously, we see it here in verses 5 through 6 when they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, kind of marry both of those passages together. And we read this, because out of you, talking about Bethlehem, 
will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they're marrying this idea that Jesus is the shepherd king that the prophets are pointing forward to. But that's not the only place. There are multiple strands through these little 12 verses where Matthew's going, hey, he's the king. He's the one. He's the one that's in charge. The first one is the magi, the wise men. And see, this is where, and I don't mean this bad, it's just reality. We're just unfamiliar with the Old Testament. We, I mean, I, you know, honestly, I am too. I'm more familiar with the New Testament than I am the Old Testament. And so when we're reading passages like this, the original readers, a person that understands the Old Testament really, really well, it's like little light bulbs jumping off. It's like, oh, oh, wow, that reminds me of this. And that's exactly what Matthew's wanting to do with the Magi. He's not just wanting to kind of present a story that really did happen. He's also wanting us to kind of think back to another time when there was a group of foreign dignitaries who showed up in Jerusalem to see a son of David. And if you go to 1 Kings chapter 10, this is what you'll read. The queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's. Who is Solomon? Son of David. That's who Solomon is. Heard about Solomon's fame and connected with the name of the Lord and came to test him with riddles. And look, look, doesn't this sound familiar? She came to Jerusalem with what? A very large entourage with camels bearing what? Spices, gold, and great abundance and precious stones. She came to Solomon and spoke to him about everything that was on her mind. That's the passage of Scripture that Matthew wants you to kind of think about, that there was a, another group of foreign dignitaries that showed up in Jerusalem to see a son of David. And here it's happening again. A group of foreign dignitaries, wise men, who are showing up in Jerusalem to see who? Not a son of David, but the son of of David. That's why later on in Matthew, Jesus can say this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. The queen of the south, who's he talking about? Queen of Sheba, 1 Kings 10. The queen of Sheba shall rise up at the judgment with his generation and condemn it. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, behold, see something greater than Solomon is here. And he's talking about himself. The second little strand that's woven through here are the gifts. What are the gifts? Say them out loud. This is crowd participation. What are they? Say them out loud. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Why? Why those three? Why not silver? I don't know. Give me some oils. You know what I'm saying? Another one. You've got a lot of old people here, so I'm sure somebody can throw in some other oils in there. But why these three? Because these are gifts that are associated with royalty. These are gifts that you give a king. And here's one thing that these wise men knew, that when they meet a king, they bring gifts. Gifts that are costly and grand, like gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they brought these to Jesus, these gifts, the best they could find. Why? Because he's the king. Not just a king, but he's the king. So magi, the gifts that are bringing. This is the royal strand that's going through these narratives. The third one is this, is the star. This strange, kind of mysterious star that is woven throughout this entire narrative. You see it in verse 2, you see it in verse 9, and you see it again in verse 10. What 
is this star? And there are tons of books that have been written about this mysterious star. There's one most recent uh, uh, that's called The Great Christ Comet. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that or heard of that by a guy named Colin Nickel. Uh, I kind of skimmed through it, and I mean literally skimmed through it this week because it's a massive little work. Uh, but here's kind of what uh, people have uh, over the centuries have said about this star. It's a comet, possibly. It's a uh, supernova or a nova. It's a a planetary conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter where both Saturn and Jupiter line up together and form this massive star. And I get all that. But the problem is, is verse 9. The star is doing some weird stuff. I mean, look what it says. After hearing the king, the wise men went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. (laughs) It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. So this star that they had been seeing now reappears, went before them, and standing over the exact place where the child was. So how does a star guide? How does a star lead? Doesn't all stars Kind of stand above every home, right? I'm saying, like, what in the world? I mean, you gotta, I mean, sometimes we forget this. There wasn't addresses in Bethlehem. It wasn't like King Herod said, hey, he's at 2200 West Main in Bethlehem. That's where he is. No, they, they had no idea where Jesus was. And somehow, this mysterious star shone in such a way to where they knew the exact location of where it was. So what in the world? How can a star do all this. This is why a lot of scholars believe that this star of Bethlehem is actually an angel, and an angelic messenger, an angel that looks like a star from, from the wise men's perspective. Now, before you think I'm off my rocker and I'm saying some heresy here, all right? So, and I get it. There's all kinds of people that disagree, but I'm just trying to show you what I think Matthew is showing us about this star here, all right? The reason why I think it's an angelic presence is two reasons number one all throughout this these narratives in chapter one and chapter two who's guiding who's operating who's kind of like the operative person i mean yeah ultimately it's god but who's he using say it out loud angels you see it in chapter one verses 18 to 25 an angel showed up to joseph and said hey don't divorce her marry her you see it in chapter two verses 13 to 15 where angel comes to joseph and said hey you got to get up and get out. Herod's going crazy. You see it again in chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, where an angel comes again to Joseph and says, hey, everything's calm. Get up and get out. And once again, you see here the work of God through an angel that looks like a star that's guiding these wise men to where? Bethlehem. Another reason why is the word appearance. Look in Matthew chapter 120, look at this. But after he had considered these things, talking about Joseph, an angel of the Lord, what did it do? Appeared to him in a dream, saying, again, chapter 2, verse 13, after they were gone, an angel of the Lord did what? Say it out loud. It's underlined, amen? Say it out loud. What did he do? Appeared. Chapter 2, verse 19, here it is again. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord, what? Appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And then... Chapter 2, verse 7, he uses it again, referring to the star. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time, the what? So why didn't Matthew just say angel? If it's an angelic being, 
Why didn't Matthew say angel? Because he wants you and me to remember the prophecy of Balaam. Yeah, I know most of you in here are going, Balaam? Who in the world is Balaam? And why do I give a rip, right? That's probably what you're saying. But some of you may be familiar with the donkey that spoke in the Old Testament. You know whose donkey that was? That was Balaam's. Go and read in Numbers 22 to 24. There's a time when Balaam's on his donkey and the donkey sees a death angel that's literally going to cut his head off. And the donkey stops. And Balaam is cussing, beaten, wearing that donkey out. And eventually God allows the donkey to speak, which I think is just awesome. I'd like to see that moment, right? I'm sure he peed in his pants. I would have, right? <laughs> he basically turns to Balaam and says, would you stop beating me, you moron? There's an angel that's getting ready to kill you, and I'm saving your life. Stop it. You are such an idiot. That's what he's saying to him. That's Lau's translation. But if you go to Numbers 22 and 24, you will see a prophecy, and you will also see how Balaam resembles the Magi here. Balaam is a non-Israelite who's a holy man and a visionary. Balaam is also from where? The east. Where are the Magi from? The east. He, like the Magi, was pressured by a king whose intent was to destroy the people of God, but he refused to go along with it, but instead took the side of God's people. And here's the big one. Balaam also saw the Jesus star rise. Numbers 24, verse 17. Here's a part of his prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush that forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. This prophecy was fulfilled in part with King David, but only in part. And what Matthew is inviting us to do by the use of this star that has a prominent presence in this story is he's wanting us to see that Balaam's prophecy has now been fulfilled, that there is a ruler, a king, a star who will come and destroy not the enemies of Moab and the sons of Sheth. That's not who he's going to come and destroy. He's going to come and destroy the enemies, and those enemies are Satan sin and death Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the king that he is the one in charge that the entire Bible is one continuous story who has one aim and that is to magnify the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ he is the king that's why it makes sense for these wise men not just to kneel that's not what they did their faces were prostrate. Their faces was, were in the ground, worshiping a toddler. Like, I don't know about you, but I've never been prostrate for a toddler before to worship them. I've been there going, God, help me, right? You know what I'm saying? I've had those moments where my face is in the carpet, say, God, I can't do this, right? But that's not what these men are doing. Because I'm not even sure if they fully knew all that was going on there, but I do know this, that when they stepped into the presence of this one-year-old child, they knew it was something more than just a regular king, that they were in the presence of God himself. They were in the presence of royalty, 
And what did they naturally do? They got their faces on the ground and they worshiped him. He's King Jesus. He's the one that's in charge. That's why it makes sense later on as we see these healing stories where the physical matter of someone's body is being transformed by a strange power that even Jesus feels leaves him at times. It makes sense when creation itself obeys him. Why? Because he's king. He's in charge. He speaks to a storm and says, stop, it stops. He tells some professional fishermen who fished all night and didn't catch a single thing. Hey, cast her now on the other side. And what happens? They can't even, I mean, it's such a big, big catch, they can't even drag it in the boat. Why? Because he knows where the fish are, and they have to listen and do what he says. Over and over we see this. We see him walking on the water. He even invites someone to roll out. Hey, come on and join me. Why? Not, not just to show us that he is God. That's a part of what's going on in these stories. But ultimately, for us to see that Jesus is the king, he's in charge. That's why later on in Luke's gospel, you hear Jesus say something that sounds like a maniac, like a psycho, a cult leader. When he says this, this is coming out of the mouth of Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life cannot be my disciple. Like, guys, if I would say that, that's crazy talk. But if you're the king of the universe, you've got to say this. This is not a command to literally hate our family, all right? No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's just saying this, that Jesus' calling for an allegiance to him is so supreme that it makes all other commitments look weak by comparison. It is a claim of absolute authority, a summons to unconditional loyalty. And the only person that can do that is a king, and that's who Jesus is. So Matthew's helping us see that a new king has been born, a king who's going to end death, not cause it like Herod did, a king who will, who will not cause sadness and mourning, but actually will make all sad things come untrue, a king who will not issue curses like Herod did, but actually will reverse the curse by taking it upon himself. And one day, when this king is fully reigning, this is what we have to look forward to in Revelation 21.4. He, meaning Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Who is this Jesus? Yes, he is God. But he is also king. And he is the one in charge. So that is who Jesus is. And who am I? If that is true about Jesus, then what does that teach me about me? Well, here it is. <laughs> and it's not great news, so just kind of bear with me. I'm a fool. I'm a fool who is in need of a king to rule me. You are a fool who is in need of a king, a good king, a gracious king, a kind king, a loving king to rule you. 
I know, some of you are going, man, I'm sure I'm glad I came to church just like I was last week. I found out I was a sinner last week, and now I'm a fool. But here, let me, try to, let me try to help you understand what I mean by this. So when Joseph was a year, year old, he's 17 now, so, uh, and my oldest, Mike Brian, was about three, um, Kathy and I had to go, I don't know what we did, we went, had to go grocery shopping or had to go something. So we asked her brother, Mike, uh, who's my brother-in-law, obviously, to come and watch the kids. So, um, and we did it in a, in, a, in a kind of a timing where we knew that Joseph wouldn't be napping and he'd only have to watch one kid, right? It's like, all right, you can handle one. Uh, you know, I know you're getting a little more mature, but you can handle one kid, right? And it's, you know, it's during a segment where Michael Brown would probably watch a little TV show, play with some toys and stuff like that. And so Joseph is sleeping, Michael Brown's watching TV, playing with some toys, and Mike falls asleep on the couch. Now, you know, understandable if they're six or seven, they'll be fine. He's three, and Joseph's one. You can't fall asleep. Not going to happen, right? That's not going to be good. And the next thing uh, Mike knows is that Michael Bryan, the three-year-old, is in his face going, Uncle Mike! Uncle Mike! Joseph's playing with his poop. (laughs) And sure enough, Sure enough, man, Mike got up, walked into his room, and there was poop everywhere. And somehow, Joseph had gotten a spoon. And we're convinced that Michael Bryan went and got him a spoon. I don't know, because we, we don't have spoons in that room ever. But sure enough, he had a spoon, and he was digging in his diaper, and it was just everywhere. We're not sure if he ate it. Maybe. We're not positive there because he doesn't remember anything he just thinks it's the funniest story ever and it is I'm telling you it just makes me laugh and smile but here's what like and a lot of you can come up here and give stories similar to that too but here's what you know right you don't have to be a parent to know this you got nieces and nephews and you leave a child to themselves without any kind of like someone around parenting or whatever there's going to be a mess right You leave a child to themselves, there's always going to be a mess. The writer of Proverbs says this in Proverbs 22, 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Look, this is not time to kind of talk about parenting, not even time to talk about spanking or not spanking. That's not what I'm want, wanting to draw from this passage of Scripture. And in fact, I would say a lot of people take this passage and abuse it and have wounded a lot of kids um, in the name of God, quote-unquote. But all I'm trying to say with this, all right, this is giving us a window into humanity, is that one of the greatest needs that a child has is he needs a loving parent, parents possibly, who will come and give authority who will come and give guidance, who will come and give direction, who will come and say, hey, don't take a spoon and dig out poop and put it on yourself, right? Like, they need, they need some help, some guidance. Otherwise, when children are left to themselves, they always create a mess. And that's not just the case for children. That's what I do as an adult. Foolishness is still bound up in my own heart. And left to myself, I make a mess. Foolishness is still bound up in your heart 
and left to yourself, you make a mess. And so what is my greatest need? I need a good king like Jesus to come and rule my life. Give me protection, to give me guidance, to give me direction, to tell me no. A healthy parent tells your kids no. Amen? Your heavenly father, King Jesus, needs to tell you no. He's not trying to kill your joy. He's actually trying to maximize your joy. And there's a lot of things he says yes to. Yes, enjoy. Yes, love that. Eat that good food. Yes, yes. There's all kinds of yeses, all right? And here's what I've learned about myself, right? Because I feel it in me. Like, I love last week's message. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's come to save. Amen to that. Come and get me out of my mess, right? I'm all for that. And probably most of us in this room are good with the idea of God saving us. But when I also hear that he's not just here to save me, he's also here to rule me. If I'm paying attention, I've got a little Herod in my heart going, I don't want that. Because I like to be on the throne in my own life. At least in some areas, right? So maybe you're here and you're a Christian. You know, some of you in, the, in this room there, I would say they're really soft-hearted Christians. You are, man. You're, you're seeking the Lord. You want to obey him. You want to love him. You want to step in and live the life that he has laid out before you. And so if that is you, I just, I just want to say, like, you can kind of rest for a second because sometimes we can get really overly sensitive and go and do navel-gazing. That's not very helpful, man. God's using you in a powerful way. God's grace is just evident in your life, man. Thank God for that. Keep living. Keep listening. Keep submitting to the king, Jesus, in your life. But there are some here who are what I would call hard-hearted Christians. And when I talk about Jesus being your ruler, there's resistance. I mean, one writer says, man, there's, in all of us as Christians, there's still this residual anger and hostility toward God. It's, it's just at play. It is there. And all I'm inviting you to do, and all I think God is inviting us to do through Matthew as he lays before us Jesus as king, is to ask yourself, what is it? Where, where am I resistant of Jesus' kind of rule and reign? Where is it specifically? And I'm confident the Holy Spirit is working even as we speak right now, and he's bringing something to your mind that you're going, ah, you're like this with it. And God is coming to you in a really kind, gracious way, going, look, if you keep doing this with this area of your life, you're going to make a mess of it. Because we're fools. And foolishness is bound up in our hearts. And we need a good king to come and rule us. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, thankful that you're here and... Um, and I just want to say, man, this is where, we're, where, we're, where I'm at, where we are. We believe you're created to live life with God. And that, that includes living under the reign and rule of God, that God knows best. And we want to submit our lives to that. That's what we believe it looks like to be fully human. And the only way that's possible, right, is when you receive Christ. Like, you're not going to want to do that in and of yourselves. Right? King Herod's going to be coming out. Ah! 
right? No, no. I don't know what this is. Maybe it's Captain Hook. I don't know, but, but that's true. Like, we don't, we don't want this, but what God does graciously is he comes and shows us the result of our sin. He comes and shows us what a mess we've made of trying to be in charge of our life and how it's not working. And if you're at that place, that's a good place to be because then all you got to do is just go to Jesus and say, I'm done. Please forgive me. I'm done. That's it. You don't have to clean your life up. Just come to Jesus and say, look, I'm, I'm done being in charge. I've made a mess of things. I need you. And you can make that happen right now. You can respond in repentance and faith today. But others of you here that are not Christians, you may say, man, I, I don't really believe that. I, I, in fact, you're kind of like going back to last week, I, I feel like I'm doing okay being in charge of my life. Things are going all right. I can take care of it. Okay. That's where you are. And there's space. God is a gracious God. He's long-suffering. He tells us in Romans, it's actually his loving kindness that draws us to repentance. And there's, there's space. Okay, that, maybe that's where you are. I encourage you to keep coming back. But understand this. There's also a risk. There's also an enormous risk that your foolishness will hurt someone and most likely hurt yourself. Proverbs says this, and I'll end with this, Proverbs 19.3. People ruin their lives by their own foolishness. And then they're angry with God. I've done that. Ruin our lives by our own foolishness. And then we get angry with God. And all God is doing through Matthew this morning is inviting you to see a better way because there is. And that better way is to live life under the reign and rule of Jesus. That's the good life. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to see this as good news, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.